and welcome to another episode of Solving History. I'm Gemma and I'm Emily. This time we're going to be looking at the infamous case of the Black Dahlia. At around 10am on January the 15th 1947, Betty Bursinger was pushing her daughter in a pram through the Lehman Park section of South LA on her way to run some errands when something caught her eye amid the weedy vacant lots. What she thought at first was a mannequin was in fact a naked female body. Severed at the waist, the stark whiteness of the victim's skin was offset by jet black hair and deformities like the gashes carved from each side of her mouth. Alarmed, Betty dashed to a local house to call the police and ignited a frenzy with the LAPD and newspapers and laid the groundwork for what became one of America's most famous unsolved cases. Now, a warning here as this is going to dip into the dark side of serial killers and their victims. So if that's going to be something that will disturb you, you should probably step away from this now, as it's pretty disturbing even for me. Okay, bye. Not you, you have to stay. An autopsy of the victim found that she perished from repeated blows to the face and subsequent blood loss. The torso's bisection, which is basically splitting her in half, and other mutilations at least coming after she was already dead. The investigation was led by the LAPD, but the FBI was asked to help and they quickly identified the victim in just 56 minutes because the victim's fingerprints were sent via sound photo, which was an early fax machine, to an office in Washington, D.C., where they could be relayed to the FBI and by the evening of January 16th, authorities had matched the prints to those of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, who had previously worked at an army base in California and had once been arrested for underage drinking. I didn't know there was an actual term for somebody being cut in half. Yeah, me neither. See, I'm not surprised I didn't know that. I am surprised that you didn't know that, which tells you everything you need to know about us, really. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, so who was the victim? So it's really easy to fall into the trap of concentrating on who the murderer was and almost dehumanising the victim when it comes to true crime cases. But here at Saga's, we want to remember the women and their stories, and this is Elizabeth Shorts. So Elizabeth was born in Hyde Park, Massachusetts, on July the 29th, 1924. She was the fourth daughter, born to mother Phoebe May Short and her father Cleo Short. Just a few months after her birth, the family moved to Medford, Massachusetts. When Elizabeth was just five years old, the Great Depression hit, and most families found it a struggle to make ends meet, and Elizabeth's family was no different. Her father, Cleo, had a job designing and building miniature golf courses, something that wouldn't stand up to the financial crisis, and soon he was down on his luck. Now, with five young daughters and a wife to support, Cleo seemed to panic, and he ran. Now, it's quite a dramatic tale of running away, because he didn't just run and leave the family. He attempted to fake his own death and suicide by carefully abandoning his car off the Mystic River Bridge, hoping that authorities would think he'd taken his own life. But just three years after attempting to fake his death he abruptly called his family to say that he was now living in san diego elizabeth's mother phoebe tried to raise her daughters as best she could on the benefits allowance but it wasn't the life that elizabeth nicknamed betty or beth wanted for herself and elizabeth herself was said to have always looked mature for her age and in her younger teen years she became obsessed with the beautiful actresses that adorned the theater screens and she wanted to be just like them in 1943, Elizabeth packed up bags and moved to California to live with her father in the hopes of becoming a movie star. Now, she quickly fell into the party scene, dating and flirting her way through brief relationships, and was often found on the arm of a good-looking man who could pay for her lifestyle. 
Within a matter of months, she'd been picked up by the police for drink driving just aged 19. This was the final straw for her father, who kicked her out of his house, disapproving of her flirtatious lifestyle, and Elizabeth headed back to her mother's home in Medford. I feel like he's not really one to judge anybody's lifestyle. No, not really. So if she went back home, how did she end up murdered in LA? Well, once back home, Elizabeth found a small job as a cashier at Camp Cook, a military base in Medford, and her beauty caught the eye of many of the Air Force pilots. And she began a relationship with a Lieutenant Gordon Fickling, who was a pilot there. The couple dated for several months and Elizabeth was convinced that they would be married. But it wasn't too long until Gordon was shipped out to take on his role in the war, leaving Elizabeth alone. Now, she was said to be devastated, but she picked herself up and a short time later she fell in love with Major Michael Gordon and soon the couple were talking about marriage. Now, Michael was sent on temporary assignment to India, leaving Elizabeth behind and she eagerly awaited for his return. But after several weeks of waiting, she received the devastating news that he'd actually been killed in action. And she was left to mourn and rumours quickly spread that she'd been pregnant and suffered a miscarriage after hearing the news. And following the death of Michael, she soon spiralled back into her old ways. So in July 1946, she returned to California, but her father wouldn't take her in this time. But luckily, her latest lover, Mark Henson, let her stay with him between May and October of 1946 while she worked as an usher in the cinema. Now, just a few weeks before her death in 1947, Elizabeth had begun a relationship with a married man by the name of Robert Manley, who was nicknamed Red. Now, he'd only been married for 15 months and his wife had just had a baby, but he was said to have been debating whether or not to leave his wife for Elizabeth at the same time. And also, very shortly before she disappeared, she'd been seen on the arm of a well-known doctor and surgeon, Dr. George Hodel, along with his artist companion, Man Ray, and film producer, John Hudson. Elizabeth convinced her boyfriend, Red, to drive her to LA in the two weeks leading up to her death. And he collected her, and the pair drove to LA. They stopped at a roadside motel where he and Elizabeth spent the night. And witnesses confirmed that the couple left around 12.20pm on the 9th of January 1947 and continued on their journey. The last known sighting of Elizabeth came from the testimony of Red, who claims that he dropped her off at the Baltimore Hotel for an interview that he'd arranged for her. And it was six days later that her mutilated body was found. Now, newspapers labelled Elizabeth a prostitute who partook in stag flicks and pornography and labelled her as a young girl who fell in hard times and wasn't above dating a man to get a meal from him. Elizabeth's mother heard not from police, but from a reporter of the gruesome death of her daughter because they were trying to find out more about the woman that had been nicknamed the Black Dahlia. And this was a nod to her taste for black dresses and a previous year's crime film titled The Blue Dahlia. And it's really important to remember that she was just 22 years old. So we know that Elizabeth was identified thanks to her fingerprints, but her prints weren't just in the database due to the arrest uh, for her drink driving. They were also in the FBI system because she applied for a job as a clerk at the commissary of the Army Camps Cook in California of January 1943. And the FBI also had access to her now famous mugshots due to her arrest. And these are the images that they chose to give to the media. I mean, that's hardly going to play on public sympathy. That's a terrible way to treat a murder victim. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, she was just a prostitute. Why bother? It's not the first time that we've seen this happen. 
Oh no, not at all. Like sadly, not the last either. No, like think about like Jack the Ripper's victims. They've all gone down in history as these prostitutes, and that's not. And we know that's highly unlikely now. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that she was twenty-two. I don't know anyone that is twenty-two now that you know feels like they fit in with the world and isn't doing different things to try and find where they fit and for her you know she wanted to no. be, and she wanted to be a movie star and by getting into the party scene she was meeting with producers and you know actors and film writers in the hopes of finding a role it wasn't just that she was getting into the party scene she was trying to find her way into being in the cinema yeah it's terrible and the her mum not being told by the police yeah. or, the, or the FBI. I mean, no mother ever wants that, no parent ever wants that news, but hearing it in that way. Yeah, the reporter... I mean, that must have been crushing. Yeah, the reporter said that they were looking for her daughter because she'd won a prize and then started asking all these questions. That's just scummy. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to see they haven't changed. Yeah. I mean, how many times do they get in trouble now for their underhanded tactics? Well, like um, when the, I think it was the News of the World or The Sun, one of one of those type of papers, um, might have been the Daily Mail, actually. I, I don't know which newspaper it was, but they hacked Millie, Dowley, Millie Dowler's phone. She was yeah. a murder victim. And they hacked her phone and were deleting messages. So her parents and the police thought she was still alive and that it was her deleting messages. Yeah. And then, um, sadly, when they found her body, they found out that she'd been dead and that it had been the press hacking. I mean, who even thinks that's an acceptable thing to do? It's ridiculous. Some people go so far to get a story. I think Piers Morgan was involved in that. And I genuinely do not know how that was at the end of his career. Uh, to be a rich white man. I know. It's going to get darker, isn't it? Yes. You've, you, is this why you sent me that picture of the baby platypus the other day? Were you, like, softening me up? Yeah. So, you know, big flashing red warning that it's going to be gory and really not nice. So, you know, if you've got therapy ducks, therapy animals, you should probably get hold of them there. Elizabeth was found with her body cut in half using a surgical method known as Hemicorporectomy, and this involves splitting the body in half without damaging or breaking a single bone. And it's a dissecting technique, cutting just beneath the lumbar spine. And it was only taught to surgeons and doctors during their time at university during the 1920s and 1930s. So it's quite a specialist thing to know how to do. Her face was bloodied and battered with blunt force trauma, ruled, as we know, as the overall cause of her death. And even more disturbingly, her uterus had been removed. Her face was repeatedly slashed and her own flesh and pubic hair were found stuffed inside her vaginal cavity. There were marks to her wrists, legs, neck and her right thigh, which suggested that she'd been bound and tortured. And the slits to the side of her mouth had been done while she was still alive. Her handbag and a red shoe were found in a bin close to the scene where her body had been dumped. And interestingly, despite the extensive mutilation and cuts on her body, 
There wasn't a drop of blood at the scene and this indicated that Elizabeth had been killed elsewhere before being brought to the park. What did the police do to try and find her killer? Well, by the 21st of January, LAPD had released a bulletin asking for anyone who knew Elizabeth or what had happened to her to come forward. The killer was not interested in talking with the police at all. Instead, he, who, I mean, we assume he, contacted the Herald Express to complain at the lacklustre way in which the newspaper was handling his, quote, accomplishment. In support of the LAPD, the FBI ran checks on potential suspects and conducted interviews across the United States. And based on early suspicions that the murderer may have had skills in dissection because of how the body had been cut, agents were also asked to check out a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School. And in a potential break in the case, the Bureau searched for a match to fingerprints found on an anonymous letter that may have been sent to the authorities by the supposed killer. But disappointingly, the prints weren't in the FBI files and this became dead end. In late January, just nine days after Elizabeth's body had been found, an envelope labelled with cut-out words and the phrase, heaven is here, arrived at the medical examiner's office. That inside was a collection of Elizabeth's personal documents, including her birth certificate, her social security card, and an address book, which featured the name Mark Henson on the cover. And if you remember, that was a boyfriend that she was living with for a short time. But a few of the pages inside the book were missing. The items themselves had been cleaned of fingerprints by using gasoline, and authorities found themselves sifting through copycat letters from the alleged killer, listening to bogus confessions and following up on other crimes that were potentially related, including the red lipstick murder of February 1947. But they inevitably found themselves back at square one with no Kevin sight. So did the police have any suspects? Yes. The police and the FBI had lots of potential suspects to sift their way through. And by December, they had some 192 potential suspects, including sex offenders and others that had been held on sex charges in the past. Now, the first man that investigators looked into was Elizabeth's married boyfriend, Red. The two had been dated for around about a month before the murder, and Red was the last known person to see Elizabeth alive when he dropped her off at the hotel on the 9th of January. Now, he helped police identify one of the red shoes and the purse that were found by the crime scene. He also took two polygraph tests and his alibis otherwise checked out and he was cleared of any wrongdoing in the murder. Now, in 1954, doctors gave him a sodium pentanol, which was one time thought to be a truth drug. And then they questioned him about the case again. But like the polygraph test, he was found to be telling the truth. He died in 1986, 39 years to the day after he last saw Elizabeth at the Baltimore, after he fell in his apartment. Now, the address book, which had been sent to the medical examiner, gave police another 75 men to track down. Most of them had only briefly met Elizabeth, going out on one or two dates before things had ended. Now, Mark Henson, who we know was a boyfriend and whose name was in the book, was a successful nightclub owner and he confirmed that Elizabeth had stayed at his home and it was an explanation that fit in with her developing profile as a drifter who relied on the sympathy of others and so he was very quickly crossed off the list as a potential suspect. So was there any one suspect that really stood out? Well a new lead emerged the following year when former LA resident Leslie Dillon 
contacted the police department about an acquaintance who may have murdered Elizabeth. Now, believing Dylan to be the actual killer with a split personality, LAPD psychiatrist Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver lured him back to LA and had members of the department's notorious gangster squad detain him to extract a confession. So the doctor and Leslie had been in contact um, writing letters before deciding to meet in person. So that's how um, he convinced Leslie to come back. And once they were face to face, Dylan actually told the doctor how to bleed a body. And it was a skill that he'd used whilst he was a mortician's assistant. And he also gave his own theories as to why some of the mutilation was inflicted on Leslie's body. So, I mean, he wasn't exactly helping himself by what he was saying. Now, the decidedly illegal ploy was exposed when Dylan managed to sneak a note out of his jail cell's window. And his supposed imaginary suspect's friend actually turned out to be quite real and he was also innocent. So that's him off of the suspect list. Well, I mean, you may think that, but in 2017, British author Pew Eatwell uh, took a stab at cracking the case of the Black Dahlia in Black Dahlia Red Rose, which revisited the evidence against Dylan and the possibility of an LAPD cover-up. So Eatwell's theory centres on Leslie Dylan, who was a bellhop and a one-time mortician's assistant. She writes that LAPD knowingly let Elizabeth murderer off the hook because Sergeant Finnish Brown, one of the case's two lead investigators, was an alleged crooked cop with links to Mark Henson, who we know was a local nightclub owner, and he was supposedly Leslie Dillon's purported co-conspirator in the murder. So Buzz Williams, who was a retired member of the Long Beach Police Department, told Eatwell that his father, Richard F. Williams, had served on the LAPD's gangster squad. Now, Williams was also a close friend of Con Keller, who was another gangster squad officer and had originally tailed Leslie Dillon. Now, according to the younger Williams, the former cops couldn't get Dillon out of their heads and, quote, my dad and I were pretty close after the age of 16 or so. I'd go fishing every year with him and his LAPD friends in the high Sierras about four or five days at a time. Now, on those trips... Williams heard of his father and Keller discussing the Black Dahlia case, and he remembers him saying that they believed Dylan had orchestrated the murder with two other men, Mark Henson and a mysterious figure by the name of Jeff Connors, who investigators had originally written off as a figment of Dylan's unhinged imagination. Now, Dylan knew a number of disturbing details about the murder, ones that the police had actually been keeping a secret, and he said he believed that Elizabeth had been murdered in a motel room and then moved to where her body was dumped. But after holding Dylan for a week, the police released him because they found this Jeff Connors who offered conflicting statements about his own connection to Elizabeth. And in the end, Connors too was then released and with the exception of a few notable but uncredible suspects over the years, the Dahlia case then went cold. Now, Ewell's theories that Dylan murdered Elizabeth at the request of Henson who he worked with. So she believes that they killed Elizabeth at the Aston Motel, where Dylan had reportedly stayed, and where motel owners Henry and Clara Hoffman admitted finding on January 15, 1947, one of their cabins, quote, covered in blood and fecal matter. 
and witnesses who stayed at the hotel noted seeing a dark-haired girl who resembled Elizabeth Short, as well as a man who fit Mark Henson's description. Furthermore, when Dylan was with Dr. DeRiver, they visited the location where Elizabeth Short's body was discovered, and DeRiver reportedly asked Dylan if he remembered it, but his response seemed to describe another murder that occurred roughly nine miles away, and that was the murder of Jean French, who was located on February the 10th, 1947, in the moors on the west side of Los Angeles. Her body was also near the sidewalk, but she'd been beaten and stomped there. But, like Elizabeth, she'd been posed, and Jean French's killer was also never located. But also our third suspect is also thought to have killed her. So, you know, sorry, just, just so I could get it in my head as we go through. The, the motel that had the blood and that in. Yes. I take it the police didn't check that or they did check that? As far as I can see, that wasn't followed up straight away. And I'm guessing they cleaned it all down and given forensic techniques then are nowhere near as good as we've got now yeah it would have been no use by then no we we didn't have dna evidence how we do now until late 80s early 90s like that's yeah. how like new that thing something that we rely on so often is still extremely new but i i guess like um you and i have both cleaned like hotels like yeah. they can be proper grim oh 100 so I guess they probably just splashed a load of bleach around and were like, ugh, guests. Yeah. And that would have destroyed anything that was there anyway. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think the other down, downside to people reportedly seeing people is that it was all over the news. So anyone that had that kind of look to them, which I assume was probably quite a popular look at the time, mm. you would think it was them. Okay, so who's our next suspect? So a third and very popular suspect to this day is Dr. George Hodel. Now he lived at Swoden House, 5121 Franklin Avenue in LA, and it was a building built in 1926 and designed and inspired by the Mayan pyramids, and it was designed by Lloyd Wright. If you have a Google, it's quite impressive. Now, he made his reputation amongst the rich and the elite of L.A. through performing illegal abortions. Furthermore, he was a trained surgeon, and this included knowing how to perform the surgical technique that would cut a body in half without breaking any bones. By the 1940s, he was made head of the Social Hygiene Bureau for Hollywood, and his circle of friends included the rich and famous and the powerful. But Dr. Hodel had a darker side and enjoyed dabbling in the unsavoury side of Hollywood, along with friend and photographer Man Ray and film director John Hudson. And the three men savoured the darker side of art and s &M. In 1945, a cloud of suspicion had surrounded the death of his long-term secretary, Ruth Spalding. She had supposedly succumbed to a drug overdose one evening, and many believed that the doctor had actually been involved in that death. After all, she knew all about his side business. It took two years before the FBI connected him to the murder, and in 1950, the FBI launched an investigation into the death of Ruth, bugging the doctor's home, and the FBI recorded and transcribed the conversations that were held behind closed doors, and may have recorded the sounds of a woman being attacked in his home. 
So the transcript read February 15th, March 7th, 1950, 8.25 p.m. Woman screamed. Woman screamed again. Woman heard in this was not heard prior to scream. Heard Hodel having sex. Heard Hodel berating secretary. Talking to the secretary about financial problems. Quote, realised there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and covered her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishing. Anyway, now they may have to figure it out. Killed her. He is also supposed to have said that if he had killed the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now, and his secretary wouldn't have been able to help them as she was dead too. I mean, make of that what you will. That same year, and allegedly from a tip-off, the good doctor moved to the Philippines, where he stayed for the next 40 years. He was also accused by his daughter of incest, rape, and performing an illegal abortion on her while she was still a teenager. According to his daughter's testimony, not only did he teach her how to perform oral sex at the age of 11, where he raped her in front of three other men at the age of 14, and to make it that much worse, his daughter did have a baby while still a teenager and her child may have been her father's. I mean, even if he didn't commit the murder, he was not a nice man. Now, former LAP detective Steve Hodel presented a convincing argument in Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story, after discovering that his father, George, yes, the doctor we've just mentioned, had been a suspect in the case. Steve found photos of who he believed to be Elizabeth with his father, along with a receipt for the purchase of 50 pound bags of concrete mix being purchased on January the 9th, the last day that Elizabeth was seen alive. The same make as the bags that were found discarded at the scene where Elizabeth's body had been dumped. Steve also pointed out that there were similarities to how Elizabeth had been posed to some of the surreal art of Hodel's friend Man Ray. The arms were posed above her head like the photo um, possessed by Mama Minotaur. The slits on her mouth could have been inspired by observatory time, the lovers. But um, fellow researcher Larry Harnish poked holes in his assessment and also Hodel's credibility took a hit when he also claimed that his dad was a Zodiac killer and Dr Hodel himself died in 1999. I don't even know where to start unpacking that. Yeah I mean all the credible suspects are all people that she had been seen with at some point we know that the body was it wasn't just dumped it was posed someone put that body in that shape on purpose you know whether it was to try and make it look like images that someone else had already taken or it was because they just I don't know liked the way that it looked when they did it is another thing and I mean whether it was the doctor and his friends that did it or if it was an ex-boyfriend and the bellhop that wanted to get rid of her you know the men that are the suspects in this case have a lot of power behind them you know they're the nightclub owners they're doctors they're famous photographers they're the film producers it was going to be someone that had more power and you don't know what the situation, we don't know what the situation of her death is, like why she was chosen, was she just fucked up the street by a random person, was she lured somewhere 
she sounds like she had street smarts. Mm-hmm. So it seems unlikely she would go off with a stranger. Yeah. But maybe she was dating the doctor and he was like, hey, how about some kinky sex? I'll tie you up. And she was like, all right, why not? I'll give it a try. And then him and his, it sounds like he likes an audience. Mm-hmm. If he's, what well, he's, the thing is, I don't, we obviously can't say, we obviously have to be careful because he's, he was never found guilty. And he could be, he could be completely innocent of all charges. Yeah. Highly unlikely, but could be. But it does sound like he likes an audience and he hung around with some guys who like to take pictures. Mm-hmm. And you said that they think he also killed, was it Jean, Jane? Jean. The, the other, Jean, sorry. Yeah, because she was, it wasn't the same, but it was similar. So it's, it's either likely that it was the same killer or a, a copycat killer because it was so close as well. There was literally a month between them. Also, like, I can't imagine somebody would kill two women in that way if we connect them and then just stop, or that that was his first, or I suppose three if he killed his secretary as well. Yeah. But then just stop, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. But then why did he go to the Philippines if he was innocent? Yeah. All right, he's top of my suspect list. He's a very popular one today. So why has this case can like captured our attention so much? I mean, while the files on Elizabeth Murderland have been collecting dust, the story of the Black Dahlia itself took on a whole new life in the literary world. Um, we've got John Gregory Dan's True Confessions, which published in 1977, which was loosely based on a murder. And this was followed by James Elroy's The Black Dahlia in 1987. The fictional but compelling accounts of these and other works bolstered some unflattering myths about Elizabeth's life. As well as the fiction, um, a new crop of writers also emerged to reveal their personal connections to the case, starting with Janice Nolton's Largely Pan Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer in 1995. And there have also been various films based on the murder. And I think as well, with no suspects in sight, it's going to be one of those things where we're always going to speculate who the murderer was. The LAPD openly admits that a lot of the evidence that relates to the case isn't where it should be, and it's basically missing. And so the case remains unsolved. But I think the saddest part of this story is not just that Elizabeth was killed, but it's the fact that only her sister, mother and brother-in-law stood by her grave to say goodbye. I guess it's kind of entered popular culture because there's um, like a uh, paranormal show called Ghost Adventures mm-hmm. and they did an investigation at the at the house that the yeah. doctor owned. So it's almost become a bit like Jack the Ripper. Yeah. It's almost become a gimmick. Yeah. I mean, she's in, she features in American Horror Story. Both her and the Doctor feature in America Horror Story. In the Murder House, they they feature in that. And I mean, in that one, they kind of twist it a little bit that she wanted like plastic surgery. 
to make her look beautiful. So even that is like popular culture is twisting who she was as a person. That's the trouble, isn't it? Like in all of these, we all remember the names of serial killers, but not their victims. Yeah. And it's wrong that we're like that. (laughs) And we say this every time we do one of these podcasts. Yeah. But it's true, isn't it? I didn't even know Elizabeth's name until you... I sort of did. I think that's the thing. But she, she lost her name. She just became the Black Darling. Yeah. She lost her life, stripped of her identity, reduced to nothing more than a prostitute in the press. Yeah. And her case never solved. Okay. So I've given you the case information and I've given you some suspects. What are your theories? I think it was a doctor. Because Red passed all the polygraphs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they don't, necessarily, seems... they don't necessarily prove to be true. They're not 100% accurate and don't have, hold up in court. But then if he'd have done it, why would he agree to that and to the truth serum? True. Um, it seems a silly thing to do if he was guilty. Mm-hmm. I'm just playing devil's advocate. No, no, I, I agree. But it, suspects who are guilty don't tend to agree to that kind of thing. Unless they're raging sociopaths. Unless, but again, why would he just kill one person? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it was like a, a crime of passion, that's a lot of rage. Yeah, and also very well planned. Yeah, because that's going to make a lot of mess. Yeah. Which is kind of why I discount Leslie and Mark. Although I guess a nightclub owner... Like you, when you think nightclub owner, you kind of think a bit of a gangster. Yeah, and also um, Leslie Dillon was an ex-mortician's assistant and he already admitted to knowing how to drain a body of blood so they could have drained her blood and then done everything to her. True. He would have had some kind of anatomical knowledge as well. He might not have been as well trained as a surgeon, but he would have had some knowledge. Yeah, no, that is very true. They just don't seem, he doesn't seem organised enough. And gangsters tend to not destroy women that way. Unless, again, I think the thing I'm stuck on is, with the exception of the Doctor, none of them have been linked to other murders. Yeah. And her death and Jean's death, if, if they're linked... It seems strange that they'd just be the two. That I think yeah. that's what's tripping me up. Because if somebody's that depraved, they don't just stop. No. But then obviously the doctor moved to the Philippines. So that means that if they stopped here in America, they stopped for a reason. Either they've com- either a murder has completed what they wanted to do, they're stopped, or they leave. They're- yeah. It does sound like with, I'm just going to keep calling him the doctor because he doesn't deserve to have his name mentioned. But if we believe his daughter and I fully support believing the victims, Mm -hmm. I'm just very aware we have to tread carefully because he was never convicted. But it kind of sounds a bit like a progression. And we've talked about this before as well. Like he's gone from raping his daughter and probably, probably other victims. And then 
it, it's got what the things he's yeah, associated got with got violent. worse. Yeah. So he he would if if I was going to be arresting somebody, it would be him. Okay. So I mean that's that's your theories. So I guess it's kind of over to everyone else. And I think the only question that I have is who do you think the killer was? Was it the married boyfriend Red? Was it the ex mortician's assistant possible? Um, killer Leslie Dillon and Mark Henson, the ex boyfriend and like Labona, or was it Dr. Joel Todell? So that's it for this month's solving history. And next month, um, we're going to be looking into the curse of Tutankhamun just to see how real it was. Don't forget to answer the poll that will be going up shortly as we need your help to solve the case. So Solving History is a Patreon exclusive podcast. We just wanted to release it generally to give you a taster so that if you enjoyed it, you might sign up and support us, which helps us be able to put out so much content. Our levels start at just a pound a month. And for that, you'll get bonus podcasts, ad free content. And then as you move up the levels, there are extra benefits. We are also going to be running a special offer whereby if you sign up, you will get our post audios, not only the ones we've already released, but the coming months uh, for free as well, whichever level you pick. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>